If you'd remain standing while we uh, read the word of God, today's passage is from Psalms uh, 42 and 43. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. <clears throat> Young Christians, little theologians, I want you to today think of something that really upsets you, something that makes you really mad. I want you to draw me a picture of that. Is it when your sibling takes food off of your plate? Is it when your parents don't get the birthday present that you wanted? What is it that really upsets you? I want you to draw a picture of that. And then I want you to draw a second picture. What helps you feel joyful again? Is it distraction? Does your, do your parents need to take you out for donuts? Is it... Uh, that you just um, go play Xbox or PS3 or 4 or 5, whatever we're on now. Draw a picture of what returns you to joy. And then after the service, I want you to ask your parents, what do your parents do? What do they do when they aren't feeling joyful? How do they return to finding joy in God? I, uh, I realized... Um, I hadn't introduced myself. <laughs> my name is Josh. I'm, a, I'm an elder here at City Press, um, and my wife and I have been here for uh, about seven years now. And uh, it's my privilege to be able to uh, come and bring the Word of God to you every now and then 
um, when Pastor Justin is out of town. And uh, in case you weren't gloomy enough in me just being here and Justin being out of town, I chose these two psalms today to make, you, make sure you end up in a right gloomy mood. However, as we work through the passage, I think that um, I'm hoping that we can see these psalms in a slightly new light, uh, a light that might prove um, invigorating and exciting. I'm reminded of a time um, in the year that I, uh, me and my wife spent in the UK. Um, there was a Kenyan lady in our church, and she had just become a Christian. And so we were going to um, have, a, have a special ceremony to, to baptize her. And so it, to help us celebrate, we invited uh, my friend Raymond, who is from Uganda, um, to come along and celebrate with us. And he offered to lead us in the uh, Swahili song that some of you may know, it, uh, Yesu Ni Wangu. Um, I'm sure some of you are familiar with it. Um, and if you're not, it's excellent. You should go look it up. Uh, there are um, some really fun videos that will uh, put you in a right happy mood. Uh, it's, it's a call and response song. Um, and so the leader sings, Yesu ni wangu, wamilele. And then you would sing, yeah, clearly none of you. <laughs> Go watch it, it's great. So Raymond, my Ugandan friend, invited, to, um, in, in, invited us to join with him um, and lead our church. And our church was mostly English folk. Now you know the type. They're very effervescent and wear their hearts on their sleeves, right? <laughs> no, no. I, I mean the, the proper English folks that have us Presbyterians bested uh, for their reserve and stoicism. And so Raymond is trying to lead this congregation in this, in this song, in this celebration. And, and finally he says, whoa, 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 okay. You know, we have this problem in Africa. And I'm thinking, oh no, <laughs> where is this going? Raymond says, we have this problem. It's an infection, an infection that passes from mother to daughter, from father to son, from one family to another. I'm like, all right, I guess we're doing this now. And Raymond says, this disease is incredibly infectious. It passes from one person to another, and there is no stopping it. There are many names for this. But here, here we call it dancing. <laughs> My friends, I don't know if you've ever seen a Ugandan lead a church of white English folks in a celebration, but it is a thing to behold. <laughs> and just as Raymond surprised us, I hope that we can examine this morose psalm together today and be surprised by what God has in store for us. So turn with me, if you would, uh, to Psalm 42 and 43. We're looking at both of these today because there's pretty good reason to think that they were originally written as just one psalm, one song um, that was split apart at some point in the past. You'll see that refrain um, in the psalm, why are you cast down, O my soul, repeated in verse 5 and 11 of 42, and then again in verse 5 and 43. And the title of verse 42, I don't know if you're like me, but I normally skip over the titles. I didn't really think there was importance in them, but I was quite wrong. The uh, title of 42 says, to the choir master, a maskal of the sons of Korah, now, the sons of Korah, as we're told in 2 Chronicles, they were charged with leading the worship. They were the ancient Israelites' Brian. They wrote the songs, they led the worship, they led the Israelites in singing. And a maskal, it's, it's a word that we don't really have a precise definition for, but it comes from the Hebrew verb meaning to make someone wise or to instruct. 
So, so put together, it's a song, it's a psalm, it's a song, and it's words that are meant to be sung, but they're also meant to teach and instruct. As John Piper frames it, psalms intend to shape what the mind thinks, and they intend to shape what the heart feels. So when we immerse ourselves in them, we are thinking and feeling with God. So what are we feeling and thinking about today? As you read through these two psalms, I think the overwhelming feeling is one of turmoil, of of downcast, of, of distraught emotions. My tears have been my food day and night. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Why, God, have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil within me? Now, the psalmist seems to have some pretty good reasons for it. I mean, in verse 4, we see that he's separated from his family, from his nation. He's, he's apart from the rest of the sons of Korah and presumably the rest of the Israelites. We see people who are taunting him, where is your God? He seems to be abandoned and isolated. The state of affairs is something that uh, the, the great Welsh preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, calls spiritual depression. Uh, he, he, he wrote a book of the same name, Spiritual Depression, and it's basically he preached 21 sermons and working on 21 separate passages of scripture and then compiled them into this book. And if you have a chance, I'd recommend picking it up because it's well worth your time. It also means the next 21 times or 20 times that I'm here, I have the next passages picked out. But why are we looking at spiritual depression? Why is it worth our time to consider it today? Lloyd-Jones suggests two reasons. First, in part, we should face this particular question for the sake of those who are in this condition, in order that they may be delivered from this unhappiness, this disquiet, this lack of ease, this tension, this troubled state, which is described so perfectly by the psalmist in this particular psalm. If our gospel, if our good news, if, if the scriptures that we have before us have promised us abundant peace and joy, which I believe that it has, and even one person is not experiencing it, I think these psalms would well be worth our study. But I think that it's not just one person. I think that even if you are not currently in that state, you will experience these times in your life. And I think it's especially prescient at this time coming out of this season of isolation from one another. And that's why I chose this. The second reason that Lloyd-Jones suggests that um, is, is a reason that I was initially repulsed by. He writes, in a sense, a depressed Christian is a contradiction in terms. He is a poor recommendation for the gospel. We need to figure out this depression thing because people won't want to be Christians if they see a depressed Christian. That seems a little upfront, a little funky. And the reason that I think it stuck like a bone in my throat was I was thinking of the solution to this problem in the wrong way. I was short-circuiting precisely what this psalm has for us. If the solution to a distraught soul is to fake a smile and to pretend that everything is okay, that will certainly not make a good recommendation for a Christian. But that's what we try, isn't it? Being a Christian is all about being happy, pretending we're happy, pretending we're cheerful. Christ died for you. Your sins are forgiven. What could you possibly have to be sad or downtrodden about? 
But the good news about our gospel, friends, the good news about our scriptures, is that it doesn't pretend that we are something that we are not. And we see in our passage today, this psalmist is wrestling with these thoughts and these feelings. And even as we progress to the end of chapter 43, the psalmist still writes, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? The psalm doesn't show the author working out of this state. This psalm is painting a picture of the way the world actually is with no hiding from the whole fraught difficulty that is our human life. But from this wretched picture of the wretched state of humankind, our gospel, this good news, helps us to walk in the midst of these trials toward a God our exceeding joy. So rather than short-circuit these difficulties and try to slap a smile on, let's see what the psalmist points us towards in confronting these trying times. There's four things that we will explore in this passage today. The first thing that we see is the psalmist asks God why. In verse 9, we read, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Has God forgotten him? No, and he knows it. Just a verse before, in verse 8, we read, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God my life. These are utter contradictions. But forgotten is used by the psalmist hyperbolically. What the psalmist is trying to do is express what he feels, a feeling of abandonment and isolation. It may not be what is actually the case, but there's a very real, subjective, experienced reality that is being expressed. I don't know if you've had this experience, but there's times where the, the weight of the soul, the, the feeling of just that downtrodden depression, it, it feels as though the expression of that is the most true thing that you have ever experienced. But while simultaneously sensing and expressing those experiences, you can step outside of them and say, I know this doesn't mesh with what I know to be objectively true. And what we're reading here in this passage is the psalmist's attempt to genuinely put his feelings, his felt reality into words. And he's asking the most worthwhile question, why? And I think it's really important for two reasons. First, as we look at how the world around us has the proclivity to think through its feelings, for emotional responses and states to provide the basis for truth, I think the knee-jerk reaction is to entirely discount our emotions and to say that there's just no basis of truth. There's just no need to consider our emotions. Clearly, that's not what the Bible encourages us to do. The Bible encourages us to engage with our emotions. We will see that there are some bounding lines for our understanding our feelings, but at the very least, I think there's an importance in expressing how we feel reality to be unfolding before us. The second reason that I think this question is important is that asking why can feel disrespectful and dangerous, especially if you ever had someone, an authority figure, tell you not to ask why. I think that some people can grow up in, a, in the Christian church and asking why is doubting, and that is a great sin, and that's dead wrong, my friends. If God is who he really is, Asking why should be the most comforting and wholesome of questions to ask. If God is truly powerful and truly loving, asking why can only be a good question to ask. That doesn't mean we'll always get the answer that we want, 
It may not be that we get an easy answer, but it certainly is a good question to ask. The second thing that we see the psalmist doing is preaching to his own soul. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, soul, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Again, we look at verse 8. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is within me. And twice more, hope in God, soul, hope in God. I think this is an incredibly vital lesson to learn, that we preach this truth to ourselves. Listen to how Lloyd-Jones lays bare this lesson. Have you ever realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing his self to talk to him, to him he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? He asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, Self, listen for a moment and I will speak to you. Just as we don't want to go overboard and entirely discount our emotional state, we also don't want our emotional state to lead us into establishing truth for us. Truth has already been laid out for us and sometimes we need to take a moment, take ourselves in hand, and say, self, listen for a moment, and I will speak to you. What you are feeling does not correspond to what is true. We need to preach that true to our, truth to ourselves. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We say, listen, self, if God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for you. He, how will he not also graciously give you all things? Soul, who, will, who shall bring any charge against you as God's elect? It is God who justifies. My soul, who is to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for you. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Or we take John, 30, John 6, 37, where Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And we preach this truth to ourselves using the litany of the Puritan John Bunyan. But I am a great sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, say you. But I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I am a backsliding sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast you out. But I have served Satan all my days, say you. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, say you. I will in no wise cast you out. But I have sinned against mercy, say you. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. Friends, our souls may be troubled and downcast and in turmoil, but we must take ourselves in hand and preach the good news to ourselves. Thirdly, we see in this passage the balm to the soul that is corporate worship. 
In verse 4, the psalmist fondly remembers how I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. And in verse 3 of 43, he, uh, uh, 43, he asks God, send out your life and your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. After a year, over a year of diminished and truncated time here on a Sunday, I wonder if you've felt similar pangs for our corporate worship. Why is this time so vital to each of us? For the health of our souls. I think first we are learning and imbibing a new liturgy, a new form, a new shape, a new thrust of thinking and feeling and doing that's at odds with how we're being shaped and formed by the world around us. Isn't it so easy when, when the dark clouds roll over, when times get difficult, that we forget our habits and our disciplines and our practices? But that's precisely when we need them most. Coming here on a Sunday, coming together with friends and neighbors, with brothers and sisters in Christ, to reflect and learn and reorient ourselves toward loving God and loving our neighbor, that's precisely when we need it the most. Second, I think we are living in the midst of when we are living in the midst of one another, we are sharing the aches and pains, the, pain, the, uh, the pains and promises, the highs and lows, the hummers and bummers of one another's lives. And in doing so, it's here that we learn to set aside the primacy of our own lives, to look outside of our own troubled souls and to look at others and to learn to love our neighbors. And third, as we come together, we hear the gospel preached. And our souls are revived and refreshed as the Holy Spirit works that good news in and through us, teaching us how to love God. There's a final remedy that I think we see in this passage for the quote-unquote malady of this spiritual depression. And it's found in the first two verses of chapter 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Here we see the psalmist pining after God himself, for fellowship and relationship with God himself. He's not asking for reprieve from his situation. To, to be happy again, to be joyful again. I, I don't need to be around fr friends and have more food. I need God himself. It's not even that overwhelming feeling of isolation that he's asking for. And he leaves off with, when shall I come and appear before God? Perhaps a better translation of it is, when shall I come and see the face of God? And unfortunately, this psalmist, he didn't have a sufficient answer to this question in the Old Testament. There were partial answers, minute answers. But in the New Testament, in Jesus himself, we have that answer. In John 14, Jesus tells us, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. My friends, we look to Jesus in whose face is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God himself. Look to Jesus who is high and lifted up seated at the right hand of the Father, and look to Jesus who is here with us, having suffered everything that we could have suffered, sympathizing, caring, and loving us. Look to Jesus. Scottish theologian James Stewart writes, he was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men, and yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming, yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that the children loved to play with him, and the little ones nestled in his arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red-hot, scorching words about sin. A breezed reed he would not break. His whole life was love, yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees how they ever expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions, yet for stark realism he has all of our stark realists soundly beaten. He was a servant of all, washing the disciples' feet. Yet masterfully, he strode into the temple, and the hucksters and money changers fell over, in one another, fell over one another to get away from the mad rush and the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet at the last, himself he did not save. There is nothing in history like the union of contrasts which confronts us in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. My friends, we look to this Jesus. We look to this Jesus who simultaneously embodies this startling contrast of personalities so that we can simultaneously be utterly blown away by the majesty of this man as well as be brought near and have the care of our soul and be comforted by the one who can care so deeply and empathize so fully with each of us. I don't know if uh, you've followed, but over the past, I don't know, six or eight weeks, uh, whether in liturgy or in the sermon, one of the elders or Justin has referenced Dane Orland's book, Gentle and Lowly, because we are reading it, we are going through it, and we are each being struck mightily by it. So if you haven't got the clue, I'd recommend picking it up. It is well worth your time. He writes in, in his book uh, a point that I think really just draws this out. We tend to think that when we approach Jesus for help in our need and mercy amid our sins, we somehow detract from him, lessen him, impoverish him. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin argues otherwise. Jesus surprises us in exercising acts of grace and from his continual doing good unto and for his members, from his filling them with all mercy, grace, comfort, and felicity, himself becoming yet more full by filling them. As another older pastor movingly put it, if you meet that poor wretch that thrust the spear into my side, tell him there is another way, a better way of coming at my heart. If he will repent and look upon whom he has pierced and will mourn, I will cherish him in that very bosom he has wounded. He shall find the blood he shed an ample atonement for the sin of shedding it. 
and tell him from me, he will put me to more pain and displeasure by refusing this offer of my blood than when he drew it forth. My friends, as the dark clouds roll over your soul, my soul, our soul, as we face the turmoil and despair, turn and see this Jesus. He is not frustrated or upset or tired in our coming to him. No, my friends, his grace abounds all the more. If I had said to you, as I basically said to Dan before this service, I can't do this. I'm too weak. My soul is too troubled. I just, I just can't do it. What would you have said? I'd hope that you would encourage me with preach that gospel. It's not our strength or our ability or our intellect or our emotional health that we preach. No, friends, our gospel is a loving Christ who whispers to us, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, as Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Preach that gospel, my friends. Preach that gospel to yourselves. Preach that gospel to one another. Preach the gospel of the Christ who condescended to live a human life that he is able to sympathize with us in every way. Preach the gospel of a Christ who works through our weakness, not in spite of them. Preach the gospel that takes our human experience seriously. It doesn't put a facade or paste a fake smile over the hurt or pain. No, my friends, this is the medium through which we preach the gospel. So friends, we will come to this table shortly to remind ourselves of this gospel, that in the bed, his body was broken for us, and in the cup, it is his blood poured out for us, that he became lowly, that, we might that he might defeat sin and death and enter into our turmoil and suffering. Why art thou downcast, O my soul, that Christ may lift you up? Pray with me. God, the dark clouds of the soul roll in when we least expect it. And we want them to simply be gone, to be wiped away, to be ameliorated. But God, you have promised to be with us in the midst of the dark night of the soul. You have promised to be with us in the midst of the turmoil, in the midst of the depression, God. You have promised to be with us. God, we pray that you would be working that truth in us and through us, that as we face it, we might lay hold of ourselves and preach that gospel to ourselves, preach the truth of yourself crucified for us that we might be made right with you, that you are here with us, that you do not simply encourage us to wipe away our tears and pretend that all is good, but that you weep with us, you have suffered with us, and you have been with us. There is no sin that you cannot imagine, that you cannot sympathize with us for. And so, God, we pray that you would be working in us and through us and lead us to see you high and lifted up. It's in your name we pray. Amen.